can take it from them and from every one of these men, pilots and crew members. When you take off, you want to be alert to every capability of your plane. You want to carry over the target such skill and emergency procedures that at the first touch of flak or fighter fire, you have the answer at your fingertips. Then you'll have what it takes to write a wing and a prayer story yourself, if you have to. Not just a rugged plane that has proved she can take a lot of pounding, but the know-how to make her give all she's got and to help her bring you safely home. The men who flew safely back from battle in these planes know the B-24's ability to take punishment is only half the story. Crew 713 is the story of my father's B-24 Liberator bomber crew from World War II. Freedom isn't free, and you don't know the cost of freedom until you know the price of freedom. On episode 30 of the podcast, we talk with Alex Mena and Fiona Hall, producers of the upcoming World War II documentary, Crew 713, The Men Who Flew the Irishman's Shanty. On Veteran Voices, the oral history podcast, we like to talk about local veteran stories and with those who tell and share those stories in creative and interesting ways, such as historians, authors, filmmakers, poets, and photographers. I'm Kevin Farkas of the Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Oral History Initiative. Welcome to Veteran Voices, the oral history podcast. Our mission is to give every veteran a chance to share his or her story. It's been several years in the making, but filmmaker Alex Mena, with the help of producer Fiona Hall and many others, are nearing completion of an exciting and important veteran story about the flight crew of a B-24 Liberator during World War II. Not only is the film about the daring bombing missions flown over Europe and Nazi Germany, it's also a heartfelt human story about the young men who risk their lives every day. As the film promises, it's about who they were, where they came from, how they came together, where they trained, how they felt about their missions, and what happened to them after the war. One of those men, the B-24's radio operator, and here's the part I like most, was Nemesio Mena. This is Alex's dad, who stayed in the Air Force right up through the Vietnam War. So this is an historical documentary, of course, but it's also a loving tribute to Mr. Mena, the crew he served with, and all the men who served in the 492nd Bomb Group stationed in North Pickenham, England, during the war years. Welcome, Alex and Fiona, to Veteran Voices, the podcast. Thank you, uh, Kevin, for having us on Veteran Voices. Yeah, my dad was a radio operator in the uh, 8th Air Force, member of the 492nd Bomb Group. He served under uh, David O'Sullivan, who was the pilot. In World War II, the, the, the crews were named after the pilot. So technically, it was the O'Sullivan crew number 713. You, too, are the creative and technical engine behind this project. And the, the name of your documentary is, no, help me out, is it Crew 713 or Crew 713? I've heard it mentioned both ways. I, I call it Crew 713, okay. uh, but but I've had some military folks to say that the actual, the way you would pronounce it would be Crew 713. Oh, that would I be see. the more military term. But I've been calling it 713 for you know seven years, so. <laughs> I certainly have come into it 
uh, into the whole project, not knowing as much as Alex and the sort of historic background. My, my background is more as a film producer. And um, I think there was a point as we've been working on the film that I realized that I was saying it wrong. And so it's hard to readjust once you've already been saying it in a certain way we discovered. So yeah. we're pretty good with anything as long as we keep talking about it. Right. <laughs> right. So the, the documentary is in progress right now. That's right. We have been working on it for, uh, I've been involved with the project for about five years, and Alex has been working on it for total eight years. Wow. And one of the things that we found that both of us are experienced in film production, and we know how to make films. But this project has been such a important film to both of us, and, and Alex will talk a little bit more about why, that uh, we really wanted to do it justice. So uh, between the heart of it is also the, the technical aspects of trying to make a great film. So it's taken a little while. Well, you know, I like to say that, of course, you know, the old cliche that um, all good things take time. But, you know, quality does matter. So if you're taking your time with this uh, with an eye towards quality as, uh, as well as other things, well, I think that's only going to be good in the end. Yeah, thank you. I mean, the thing about the movie is that I, I got a degree in communications uh, from the University of Texas at Arlington, and my, and my minor was in art. And so, with that background, uh, and the film was film it was actually taught under the art department. So we we kind of wanted to put an art element to the documentary. So we the whole idea is that we're going to build some animation pieces uh, into the film to convey the the horror and the terror that these men went through on a daily basis, flying these missions um, over occupied Europe and, and Nazi Germany. And in order to do that, we uh, wanted to convey the images through a, sort of a graphic novel look. Now, I find this to be very fascinating. You're using interviews, you're using diaries from the crew, and you're using uh, you know, the short vignettes and animation. That is so unusual. We wanted to, when we heard about the story and, and we connected with Alex over this, you know, we could tell that, that Alex was passionate about wanting to make the story, but his vision for how to do it in a way that engages a younger audience, that it's not just about telling a story. It is about educating and doing it in such a way that grabs your attention. And at the heart of that is is empathy, right? It's being able to put in the shoes of young men and and the people who are flying and the people who experience this in, into a younger generation and to people who just literally don't understand what this was like. And so the small part that we can do to help with that empathy, I think just goes a long way and something that we really loved about Alex's vision for the film. Yeah, you know, it's always incumbent upon you know, those of us who um, tell these stories or help tell these stories to think about ways that we can translate for our current audiences, you know, especially the younger generation, you know, I, and I hate to say that the younger generation is more, you know, acceptable of animation, which they are, but I don't think that's really it. I think there's, animation is, um, it's a particular platform that can tell a story in a, in a certain way that is, uh, that, that will resonate, I think, differently with audiences, right? Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and uh, in addition to using animation and, uh, you know, the veteran interviews and, and um, a lot of graphics to really push the story forward, we're also going with something that I think is pretty unique. Uh, we're going with a all uh, modern 
soundtrack. So we're not going to have music from Glenn Miller, or we're not going to have any music from the 40s, swing music, any of that big band sound. We're going with completely modern music from this era uh, in order to engage the, the kids of today, to, you know, to let them know that, yeah, this happened 70-something years ago, but we want to bring it into the modern, to a modern audience. Oh, I so like the way you guys think. That is awesome. Yeah. You know, I do these audio shorts with uh, stuff from our archive, and, and I do the same thing. I put this music in there. Some of it is, you know, ambient music. Some of it is new agey and, you know, around these old stories, 70-year-old stories. And I've had people say, that just, I don't know. And I've had other, other people say, oh, man, that just is awesome. That really works. But it's great to hear that you guys are doing that. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea was that you can make a documentary about World War II and you can get a specific audience. That's a given. Um, you're going to get the aviation people, you're going to get the World War II people, and you're going to get that older audience, okay? I get that. But the whole idea that, you know, one of the secondary or one of the primary reasons that we, we wanted to do this was to educate. Sadly, in this nation, we seem to forget our history. We don't, you know, we don't learn history anyway. They don't teach it. It's really important to remember the history, the good and the bad of this nation. And um, I think it's important that everyone know that and uh, to study what these guys did and to see ways in which um, possibly war can be avoided in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question that's going to sound peculiar to you, but how important is the truth to you? Oh, absolutely. We have 11 uh, uh, historians. Uh, I believe we have four uh, in the UK and seven here in the United States who pretty much vet everything that, that we are producing just to make sure that we're on the, the right side of truth. And that comes down to our models when we've been making the aircraft really down to a very prestigious detail, which is wonderful. But there's a couple of answers I think we can give, you know, some on that wider sort of philosophical level of how important is the truth. I think from a perspective of a, my British history and Alex coming from um, obviously an American point of view, both of us know that we are products of our history and we're products of the people who have gone before us and you're doing them a disjustice and a disservice if you don't accurately at least try to accurately reflect the lives that they led and for many people obviously you know sort of on a global level you don't get to hear all the stories but if you get to even a chance then you have to be as true as you possibly can to the the heart and the the factual accuracy of what the lives that they lived. Hmm. What are some of the greatest challenges that you're facing with the production? Honestly, and truthfully, it's funding. Um, <laughs> I, let, me, let me backtrack. In 2007, I went home for a family reunion, and my dad was still alive at that time. Uh, I remember telling him that I wanted to make a documentary about his, about his crew. And uh, he kind of you know, he nodded his head and said, great, let's, you know, I, I appreciate that. And then about five months later, he was, you know, he was gone. So in 2008, we, we, we went to a reunion of the 492nd Bomb Group. We interviewed eight veterans. And maybe it was, you know, I was naive, but I really thought that, that we would get the funding rather quickly. And it's so weird. We, we, we produced a really nice screening trailer, and we got a lot of people saying, love this movie, love, love the subject. We couldn't get people to give us any money to make the movie. Mm. So that's sort of been our biggest, uh, honestly, our biggest obstacle to completing the film. As much as getting interviews and people being willing to share letters and 
photos and stuff like that, it's, I mean, it's a downpour, if you will. It's just goodwill. Uh, it's, uh, we're just kind of lacking in the, in the funding aspect of it. I will say on that, you know, as Al said, that getting funding is difficult. It really is. No, no matter what project you're doing. And, and you know, when Spielberg struggles to get funding for some parts, you know, to get something greenlit. I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to sound cheesy. But one of the things that is inspiring about the crew that I think has kept both of us going and, and all of us working on the project is um, this sort of motto of don't give up. And you just keep going no matter what. And so clearly not having a huge budget and not having a lot of resources to be able to make a film, and especially animation. Animation takes time and money and it's expensive. But there's definitely been highs and lows in making this film and you just need to keep going. You really do. It's like, well, never mind. We just need to keep going. And so that's inspiring as well just to to reflect on the same sort of courage, I guess, that the men had, that they just needed to keep going no matter what. So on that, so on that small scale, we're reflecting, you know, a little bit of, of how, tiny bit of how these men thought about the world. Well, you, well no one's going to believe in this project more than you are. And right. to the degree that you can convey that faith in your project, uh, you know, it will rub off. And, you know, to some degree, I think, you know, I was mentioned earlier about the niche of, uh, you know, veteran storytelling. And I think that, you know, trouble getting funding for this stuff is just part of that niche um, dynamic that we have. You know, yeah, if you have a Spielberg project or something, you know, massive, yeah, maybe there's a real interest or there's a, there's a big commercial, uh, you know, ROI. Yeah, sure. But to tell them these stories of average people, yeah, who's going to pay for that? You know, that's yeah. it's a serious question. I agree. And I remember Fiona and I attended a um, seminar on, on documentary funding. And, and one of the speakers said that, you know, one of the things that you can sell as a documentary, documentaries are, are by their very nature. They don't tend to be big money earners on the film circuit. So you know, you're going to get your comic book of the week movie. That's going to be a big, you know, money maker. But documentary in general is just there's just not a lot of money there and so this particular individual said what you should do when you pitch the ROI is what that individual that investor or whatever is giving back to the world basically you know this is the ROI is knowing that you contributed to something to add to the goodness to the world's knowledge yeah, you know, you are so right about that. At the end of the day, you know, after the, you know, these projects get made and played and shared and, you know, five years from now when it's, uh, you know, the DVD sitting on a shelf, you have to ask yourself, uh, you know, what what was that really about? So presenting this history to the world is the legacy that at the end of the day remains. Yes, this is a kind of film that could be taught to, you know, grade school, high school, universities. And, uh, and I really think it, it could be an important component of a history class. Absolutely. And I really hope that that happens with your project. Thank you. And I think the other part of that is um, even so in the short time that we've been making the film, um, the massive advances in how you can get films distributed and mm-hmm. where technology is going. I'm excited about that, actually. I mean, I think there used to be such a narrow point of view as an independent filmmaker there was a couple of different options about one how you could get your film funded and two where that film was later going to be shown and I think because there's just an explosion of avenues from your Netflix to online streaming to all sorts of things and 
and your own promotions. People thirst for content. And uh, yes, all that we've said about niche content, it's all very true, but good storytelling is good storytelling. And that's what we hope that we're going to produce is, is a great film. And that, that we can find, there are new and exciting ways to be able to distribute that, that even weren't here five years ago, you know, it evolves and it changes and you use it to your advantage. Sure. I think what you're touching upon there is this, uh, you know, this explosion of um, media avenues for, you know, uh, creative people. You know, for example, gear has come down in price, good quality gear. There's social media, do-it-yourself sort of um, platforms and venues that, you know, our creative work can get through to the public. So we don't need these larger houses, you know, these uh, larger um, producers to, to handle this work. We can do it ourselves. So, yeah, exactly. I think that comes with sort of blessings and curses that, uh, you know, it is open. And that's a really good thing that there's more opportunity. But then, you know, you do have to look at um, the quality of the filmmaking. You do have to look at, you know, your earlier question about the truth, about how accurate that filmmaking is. Is is it sensationalist or is it, you know, about what's going on in people's lives? So I, I think it's got great opportunities. And, and the one thing, too, that seems to still hold, uh, at least, you know, certainly American viewers and, and, and international viewers, is this fascination with World War II. As a matter of fact, Christopher Nolan, well-known director, is, is currently producing uh, and directing a film called Dunkirk, which is, of course, about the evacuation. And uh, uh, that is getting a lot of, you know, big reviews, and it's going to be released next year in 2017. And, of course, um, Spielberg and uh, Tom Hanks are currently working on their third installment for HBO based on a book called Masters, Masters of the Air. So, yeah, there, there seems to still be a lot of enthusiasm for subject matter dealing with World War II. Well, let me ask you a question around that. We've turned a corner on World War One. I. I mean, it just is not present in our everyday, you know, uh, popular psyche, popular culture. We work with a, a lot of post-9-11 veterans now, and uh, that's that's a big project that we have going, and um, our large cohort, really, is the Vietnam veteran group. We're turning the corner on the uh, World War II folks, so I'm sensing that there's a sea change happening here, and I'm just, uh, I think to myself all the time, and I'm going to ask you this question, how much time do you think we have that until World War II stories no longer become, I don't want to say popular, but um, relevant to our society? I thought about this, and, and we've, we've, thought, we've discussed this. What does World War II stand for, really? It is clearly the, the last quote, you know, with quotations around it, good war. Uh, it's the, you know, when there was clearly a good side and a bad side. And I think ever since uh, in any major conflict that the United States has been in, starting with Korea, going through Vietnam, and even some of the current conflicts in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, there seems to be a lot of controversy of the United States' involvement in those wars. When you have this last war, which is uh, World War II, when the United States clearly emerged as a victor, and especially stepped out onto the world stage as the leader, I think that's missing from, from the current conflicts. And I know that Vietnam is, is a really, really controversial war and I'm glad that there's now some films that are going that are being released and some documentaries that are being released about both sides about how it was not run well and also about you know some of the resistance that here in the United States I hate to be pessimistic about it and, and you know I'm not 
I just, I just, you know, this stuff I think about quite a bit and of just how these um, eras, these passing eras are taken up by storytellers for the future. Great stories live forever, pretty much. And, you know, it's, there are themes, you know, in, in all storytelling and you find those themes in each era. And I still am excited about Greek storytelling, you know, <laughs> ancient Greece or... Um, or Shakespeare, or, you know, I was just, I was just looking at a a story about King Arthur that has just been made. And I'm not, uh, I'm a natural optimist anyway, but I'm a a really realistic optimist. (laughs) Um, And I know that everything comes, everything's in eons, right? There's popularity. I've never seen, in fact, I only see a thirst for great thematic stories in every art form, but not just art form, even, you know, within the science community, just finding good narratives and good stories, it never ends. And I think, for one, I think there's still a lot of legs in the World War II interest, and I think we've probably still got another five, ten years. But I I still think if you can find the great stories, then you'll have an audience. Oh, I so agree with you on that. And to bring us full circle to, you know, the elements of your documentary, you know, you have the diaries and the interviews, but the animation and the the music. Well, you know, yeah, you're telling a great story that is timeless, a human story, you know, at, at heart. But you're adding these elements that directly connect with a modern audience. I think that's just key to, you know, timelessness. Yeah, and I and I think too the, the story of this of this particular crew and the bomb group that they were members of is, is, is I think what makes it even more dramatic. Uh, when I first started the process of, of making the movie, you know, I was, was going to make this film about my dad's crew, but nothing exists in a vacuum. So I was introduced to the 492nd Bomb Group and their website and some of the guys that are, that are running that website, uh, Paul and Dave Arnett. Their father was also a member of the 492nd. And so they produced this fantastic uh, website. And uh, through them, I ended up uh, meeting a lot of other folks who were uh, members of the, of the bomb group, either veterans or families or historians. And so you, you, you start realizing that there's a larger story here. Yeah, my dad was, his crew was the first to get to 30 missions, which was always an accomplishment in World War II for a heavy bomb crew. But the 492nd Bomb Group statistically is the most devastated American heavy bomb group in the history of Second World War. To this day, 72 years later, they are still ranked as the most heavily devastated due to you know, losses in the history of the, uh, of the United States Air Force. And so telling the story of these guys, there are so many losses, so many losses of men and airplanes, and how they, every day, they just climbed back into those machines and you know, you know, kept on going. It's pretty inspirational. That is so ins- inspirational. And that is, um, that's a lesson for all of us, how in the face of such a devastation that they certainly witnessed, you know, day to day, that they climbed back into those machines, took those ships up into the air. And, you know, a lot of the pilots that we've talked to over the years have said, um, you just put the danger behind you or in a pocket somewhere, or, you know, you put it somewhere to allow you to just do that day in and day out. And I mean, and to be accurate about it, I mean, people did crack up, you know, people did have hard times with this. And I think that's something we don't hear enough of, of the real struggles, you know, around what we term today, you know, post-traumatic stress, but my goodness, what they did. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, in England, uh, as far as part of their, um, um, therapy, they, they did have these things called flat checks, 
where recruits which had gone through a particularly harrowing uh, mission would be taken off the, you know, off the regular mission uh, schedule, and they would send them off to these homes there in England. Usually, they're belonging to some squire, country squire, some you know, uh, royalty of some sort. And uh, these houses were uh, or mansions were converted into uh, homes where the guys could just relax and get away from the war for you know five days a week and then go back in. And so I thought that was really fascinating that they were doing that back in 1944 uh, during the war. And now post-traumatic syndrome is now a commonly accepted symptom of war. I think that, um, as Alex says, you know, there, there was at least inclinations that how your mental health is, is affected. And I think it's a really positive thing that our culture and societies are moving towards is how to really start talking about trauma, mental health on a, on a wider scale. And, and, and I can only see that as a, as a really positive thing. And certainly coming from my culture, so Britain, we really do, that stiff upper lip is really real and we don't talk about things. It's quite a, you know, a pronounced thing in our culture. And there's a shift. Even recently I heard uh, Prince Harry talking about his experiences after his mother had died, actually. And, and he had really wanted to emphasize, brought together a number of athletes and brought together a number of veterans to talk about, so let, let's bring this into the open. Let's not have this as a stigma anymore. How, did, how do we deal with and how do we talk about trauma and how do we overcome it? So I, I think it's something that if we are all willing Going back to that question you you said originally about the truth, if we're willing to actually admit and talk about the reality, which is that I, I mean, it must have just been unbearable, and and I don't know how I could have done it, what these veterans cope with, but let's talk about it, you know. Yeah, and I think your film is um, going to open up a dialogue. We certainly hope so. We certainly want to start a conversation about. You know, I mean, you know, not just about what the veterans go through in, in battle and stuff like that, but uh, also, you know, just just trying. You know, here's here's the thing: we at, at the end of each interview, we ask uh, the veterans a hundred years from now, when you're gone, what do we take back from World War II? You know, what what are the lessons to be learned? And you know, to almost to a man, they said, we got to figure out a way to solve our problems without without war. That's interesting. Yeah, it's pretty profound. Yeah, take it from the men and women who had been there, right? That's that's what a lesson that is. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. We'll return shortly to our conversation with filmmakers Alex Mena and Fiona Hall. You are listening to episode 30 of Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast, a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. To learn more about us and to access our other podcasts and online collection of veteran stories, visit our website, veteranvoicesofpittsburgh.com, where you can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. Don't miss an episode of our many other podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a helpful review. You can also subscribe to our podcast with Android and through email. Our nonprofit mission is to create communities of listening around local veterans and their stories through public storytelling programs and oral history interviews so that veterans of all eras and branches of service can preserve and share their memories in their own words. 
Thousands of local veterans, their families, and members of the public have participated in our special storytelling events and Veterans Oral History Project. No one else in the region does what we do to recognize and honor the veterans of Western Pennsylvania, but we need your help. Please support our nonprofit mission by becoming an underwriter or by making a tax-deductible donation. Here's how. Visit VeteranVoicesOfPittsburgh.com where you can make a secure online donation. That's VeteranVoicesOfPittsburgh.com where you can make a secure online donation. Could I get each of you to share a favorite story or two from the project? Yeah, let's see. That's like picking <laughs> your uh, favorite kid, right? <laughs> it's like, you have so many. Right. Well, a story, you know, a, a, maybe a small vignette, um, a, something that someone had told you in this process that really resonates with you. Yeah, uh, we interviewed one of the veterans. He was a navigator, and he was talking about how, again, what I, what I was just talking about, he said, you know, how did World War II come about? And he said, good people in Germany didn't speak up. And he said, you know, had they spoken up in Germany and had world leaders in France and England been a little bit more forceful with Hitler before he came to full power, there might have been a way to avoid him and maybe even you know, eliminate him from power. And he said, you know, it, good people don't speak up. That's what creates problems in, in not just there in Germany in 1933, but uh, 34, but, you know, it could be you could apply that to pretty much any nation at some point when a tyrant comes to power uh, or a dictator comes to power, that there's much more people that are opposed to that person, but they're the silent majority. And I think he was trying to say that you know we need to be more active in choosing our leaders and making sure that they do the right thing and the wise thing for society. Yeah. Wow. Are there any characters? I mean, I mean, your dad, obviously, <laughs> is going to be a real favorite, but are there any yeah. uh, characters in the documentary that, um, you know, you really like and you really um, cotton to? I had been under the assumption that during the, the 30 missions flown that no one on my dad's crew had ever been injured. And uh, recently I heard through uh, a, a relative of the, our nose, uh, my dad's nose gunner, his name was Emmett Coomer. He was from Wills Point, Texas. And apparently he got hit on a mission, he was in the nose, and the, some of the plexiglass came out and you know hit him, and you know he sustained some minor wounds, you know, some bleeding. When he got off the plane, his commander said something to the effect, "Well, you know, you, you qualify for a Purple Heart, you know, if you want, you know, if you want to put in the paperwork for it." And he said, "Nah, this is this is minor. There's other guys who deserve it better than I do." So he just passed up a Purple Heart. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> How about you, Fiona? Same question. I had the privilege of interviewing we when we went to England and I met with a couple of historians, but the main reason I was there was to talk with a really amazing lady. Her name that we referred to her was Tractor Annie. And um, I actually don't even remember her name. And when we talked to her, she was like, yeah, I'm just Tractor Annie. So her story is just phenomenal. She was 17 years old when uh, the American Air Force came and said, so we're going to take over your land and we're going to have the base, the North Pickenham Air Base. It was on her her father's land. And because of a couple of different circumstances, she was really running it. She was doing a lot of the work. And 
um, you know, just young 17 year old girl who was on a farm up until a couple years ago, you know, she was just running a farm in, uh, in Norfolk. And all of a sudden, see, here's these, you know, hundreds of American airmen coming to her base. And she talked with such eloquence about her experiences and how she used to sit on the tractor and count the the planes going up and then be on that same tractor and watch them come back down again and know that some of her friends were just lost. And because of the nature of, of this particular crew, the 492nd, that number was so much higher. Um, and she, her and her family, they really brought these airmen into their homes and they were a surrogate family. You know, as you imagine these 17-year-old, 18-year-old boys and I have a son, and so I relate to, you know, I think about my son, and I think if I wasn't there, I would have wanted someone to treat them like they were family. Mm-hmm. And so she talked about that. She talked about how they just welcomed these young men into their home. And she's got a couple of funny stories about, you know, like, as she says, they tried to get fresh with me, and then, and she's, like, kicked one of them off her tractor, you know, just just wonderful stories but traumatic stories and um she's very stoic about it but um you can tell that she's just deeply deeply affected by it so and she was just a just a powerhouse of a woman i mean i she was maybe 88 when i spoke to her and i i just i was so enamored by her and her um the way that she obviously had treated and her, her and her family had treated the men who were so far from home. Um, and then they dealt with the trauma and then, you know, she got back on with life again once it was over. But, uh, yeah, she's got some wonderful stories. I love those stories of the service men and women, you know, stationed in these countries and England in particular, I have uh, relatives who were stationed in England and, uh, I appreciate those stories and sometimes they're, they're just um, not what they quite, you know, uh, seem because you're dealing with, you know, two different cultures. Therefore, you know, is there's the, you know, the civilians and the military people. There's that dynamic, and there's a, uh, those are always interesting encounters. I think we interviewed a, a fellow who was in army counterintelligence, and he was stationed in England, and he was one of these fellows who didn't wear a uniform. <laughs> he uh, was in a boarding house, and the uh, the lady who ran the boarding house was very nice to him. But after a while, she she started to get suspicious, and she and she finally cornered him one day, and she said, "Young man, why aren't you in the war?" <laughs> and he couldn't <laughs> tell her. <laughs> but she just saw him in civilian clothes, leaving every day, coming back, and she was like, "You need to be in the war. How come you're not out fighting the war?" <laughs> Right. But they actually became good friends and uh, stayed in touch for years after that. <laughs> One of the books that we are using as a resource and material is there was, I think, eight or nine books written about the 492nd. And uh, this one book is called 32 Co-Pilots. Uh, written by one of the veterans, his name was Charles Bastian. Uh, Charles has since passed away. But he tells the story of, of a photographer who would take the, um, you know, because they took photos of all their missions, right, to strike photos. And he would so this this particular guy was with the photo, uh, photography unit that was there at the base. So he never flew any missions. So his story of living in England is completely different than the guys who flew the missions. The guys who flew the missions went through all the hell and losing their buddies or ran the risk of getting blown up. This guy had a regular nine to five job that he would you know go visit some farm 
folks that he had made friends with and eat fresh eggs and, you know, stuff like that and go to the pub and have a beer and get up in the morning and just process film. And that was his whole experience in the war. So it's, it is interesting that in, in the same air base, there were people who, who were risking life and limb and then the other guys who were doing just as important duty, but they were not exposed to the same uh, dangers. Right. Boy, you know, World War II, if it's nothing else, it was um, complicated. The experiences were very divergent and diverse, and uh, some people were in the thick of it, and some people were on the fringe of it. You know, I mean, it's it's, as divergent as some people survived it, and some people didn't, and everything in between. Statistically, there was very few veterans who actually saw combat. There was millions that were drafted and served, but uh, just a handful actually, statistically, uh, actually saw combat. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is, um, well, I'll preface it like this. A lot of folks that we talked to who weren't combat veterans, um, you know, of all eras, matter of fact, you know, they're they're reluctant to share their story because, in their words, they say, oh, you know what, I I didn't do anything. You know, uh, it was just, I was there, I didn't do anything, I'm not a war hero, I don't have any medals, that sort of thing. And, of course, you know, we know that those stories are, are as important, too. Did you run across anybody who, in your process of the, the film, who, you know, was there flying and so forth, who had that attitude? Like, well, it was just my job, and, you know, did you run across that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, almost, you know, to a man, every one of the veterans that we interviewed just kind of had that same attitude, whether they were uh, flying missions or they were turning wrenches as mechanics or cooks or, or whatever they were doing, supply clerks or whatever. They all had the same attitude. It was just, you know, just doing a job. And so how did you cut through that? You just kind of ask them more questions and, and just kind of engage them in what they're doing. I mean, we talked to several crew chiefs who kept the planes flying. And, I mean, think about it. I mean, a plane is a very complicated piece of equipment, especially a heavy bomber. And a plane comes back with 60, 70 flak holes, and, you know, those flak holes have, you know, have created who knows what sort of internal damage in the, in the aircraft. And uh, that has to be repaired and maybe that plane's going to fly another mission the very next day. So you've got all these mechanics that are working out on the flight line, fixing these you know, planes up, patching them up as well as they can so they can go out on the next mission. That's important. You can't conduct the war without having you know, the implements to have a war, right? An aircraft or a tank or a jeep. They all have to be working properly in order you know, for the actions of, the, of, your, of your team. Sure. Even bacon and eggs was part of the war effort, you know? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> just the, the logistics of conducting a war, just amazing. Uh, when the 492nd flew over and took over the air base, uh, which had been built for them by, by the British, there was approximately 70 air crews, which made up 10 men in a crew. So that's 700 men in, in a bomb group. Uh, and that's average for each bomb group air base. But the support to keep those 700 men and 70-odd planes flying was approximately 3,000 individuals at each airbase to keep it flying, to keep those guys flying in the air. It required 3,000, you know, groundhogs who, 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 kept the, who kept the rest of the stuff running. That's just amazing. I need ball bearings. I need this. I need food. I need bacon. I need <laughs> eggs. I need clothes. I need parachutes. We need uh, bombs. Bombs have to be shipped in. I mean, sure. 50 caliber bullets. I mean, all this stuff has to be brought in from someplace, right? I mean, it has to be inventoried and it has to be... It's a massive effort. It really is. So you both are very experienced filmmakers. What advice would you give to folks out there who have 
a dad, a mom, a grandparent uh, who served in the war, and they want to get their story as well. Do you have any advice for folks how to do it? Um, uh, For example, a buddy of mine always says, hey, you know, the most important thing is to set the date. Hey, I want to talk to grandpa. Well, set the date. If you don't set the date, you always put it off, you know? So I always remember that little nugget of, of beautiful advice. And I like to ask people this question, especially people who do this, you know, who are veteran storytellers. What advice do you have? You're right. I, since I started this, this journey, I've come across so many people who tell me their stories about, oh, you know, my uncle or my dad or my grandfather. And the first thing I always ask them is, are they still alive? And if they say yes, I say, well, you know, get your cell phone and just turn it on. Oh, and record. Cell phone, yes. You know, and then take notes and take photos and, and just, you know, because once they're gone, that history's gone. Yes. I think what... I would add to that. I I would agree with both of those things. I think one of the things that we are all guilty of is we want to inject our experiences and our opinion on others. And I think the best thing we can do is listen because we don't understand. And we can bring our, our subjective experiences and opinions into the stories of I mean, not just veterans, but of all people. And we do come with these assumptions, but we just don't know. And so I think it's, for me, it's about that sort of heart attitude and mental attitude of when you, you're coming to this, once you've got those those logistic things out of the way, is really listen. What is it that needs to be told? And maybe that's going to take time. Maybe that's going to be over a period of, uh, you know, it's not just one sitting. Even then, that takes time to listen to what the person is trying to say, or maybe that they can't say it right now. Maybe that's a, a too difficult a story, especially sort of being younger. We just have this impatience, don't we? And so just being able to sit and, and listen to these stories and be okay with silence and be okay with with tears and be okay with not being able to tell the story. I mean, that in itself is hard. So yeah, hmm. listening. Yeah, my goodness. We are finding, and I'm sure you've realized this too, that you know the act of listening on our part is also so beneficial for those who are telling their stories. You know, they they get a chance to you know talk about things they haven't talked about in perhaps many years, say things that they have been unwilling to talk about for many years, and so what a great experience for people as they tell us, you know, to share their story as well as uh, for us to listen as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, they, they compartmentalize uh, their memories. And I think, you know, uh, in the times that we were interviewing the veterans, I made some sort of an observation that there's two types of the veterans, if you will. There's the guys that were the lifers, and then there were the guys who were only in for that period of war. It seemed like the ones who were only in for those three or four years of the war tended to compartmentalize their memories, you know, in order to carry on with their life. And the lifers, the guys who stayed in the war afterwards or the Army, Air Force, maybe, they tend to be a little bit more open because they're still, they were in the military much longer. And I think we're more open with the fact that they, you know, could die at any minute serving their country. So I think, you know, my dad was in that latter group. And so I think that, you know, when he talked about it, you could ask him, and he was very open about it. When we were conducting interviews for the film, some of the sons and daughters would sit in on the interviews and they would come up to me afterwards and they say, he told you stuff we've never heard. And those were the guys who had just kept it inside. Yes. 
That is just so amazing. It is. It really is. They were willing to, to talk to me because I was not close to them. I wasn't a family member. I was, I was just an impartial quarter, if you will, of their history. That's funny how that works. You know, sometimes the stranger in the room can be so beneficial and other times not. Absolutely. The film is about the emotion and about the storytelling, but there's so many other aspects to it. And so, yeah, uh, it's a process, mm-hmm. right? It's And you learn more every time. So even the film itself has gone through um, sort of, it's gone through changes in how what the vehicle is to tell the story. And we're focusing a lot more on Alex's father because we we wanted to really bring home how his what the impact of was of his father's sort of upbringing and how that all pulled together and one of the most impactful for me i think in just kind of in terms of making the film was when we there's a key part of the film that um his father when he had completed the 30 missions he was uh he's from El Paso in Texas and there's a mountain there, a holy mountain, a holy mountain Mount Cristo Rey. And we walked in the, in the footsteps that he had walked after the mission. And uh, he, we had thought at the time that he had gone up uh, the mountain. 30 times. 30. He climbed the mountain 30 times for 30 missions. Wow. And, and, and this is a high mountain. We did it. You know, we climbed the mountain and, and, um, but the, the timing of which he did it, when we were in El Paso, we found out that he at one point gone up seven times in one day and he had done it barefoot. And even just that, when you're walking in the footsteps and we, when we did it, we struggled to do it one time. But when, when you're walking literally in the shoes of someone, it's quite phenomenal. So, yeah, we got to reflect a little bit on how this storytelling is going to work from from looking at it from, from really from his eyes. Well, I'm sure others will be as interested as I am. And, you know, we want to direct them to your website and your social media. So could you tell us how someone could find out more about the, the documentary? Sure. Um, our website is uh, crew713.com. That's C-R-E-W, then the number 713.com. If you go to our website, you can link to our to our Facebook page and also our Twitter account. And find out more about you and the, the film and see portions of interviews there on the site? Yeah, the, there's a, a film trailer there, plus other videos that we've performed uh, and, and produced for others. Uh, one of our big uh, supporters here in Dallas is uh, the Commemorative Air Force uh, B-29, B-24 Squadron. And so we, we produced a, a video for them, and that's up there on our website as well, to... Uh, to save their B-24 bomber dying low, getting funding for their for their projects as well. All worthwhile stuff. Well, I want to thank you both for being on the podcast. It's so wonderful to talk to other veteran storytellers. I mean, that's what this podcast is really about, and we really appreciate it. This is our first time recording with someone in Texas, I believe. We were in, we've were we been in New Mexico and Colorado, and uh, last podcast, we interviewed a fellow doing oral histories in Oklahoma. So uh, I guess we're working up way up the uh, central time zone, I guess. <laughs> yes, Bubble. But thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it, being able to tell the story. And thank you for what you guys are doing yes. as well, because, uh, yeah, it all pulls together to, to something we all believe in. Our guests today have been Alex Mena and Fiona Hall, producers of the upcoming World War II documentary, Crew 713. 
I'm Kevin Farkas. Thanks for joining us. And remember, every veteran has a story to tell, and we are listening. See you next time on Veteran Voices, the oral history podcast. Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. You're listening to Veteran Voices. You're listening to Veteran Voices. <laughs>